there is a non-zero chance that someone's going to write our names on the on the U.S. ballot. Oh yeah, you don't understand, Mike. That is going to happen. I, I guarantee you that. Yeah, and so someone somewhere is going to have to read out how many votes we got. Yeah. Right. Like someone is going to read it out somewhere, and then me and you <laughs> have been. We've got a vote or two. It's going to be great. It seems inevitable that someone's going to write Gray Holy 2016 on their on their write-in vote. I would be shocked if it doesn't happen. I'm very excited about that thought. Yeah, but then this can also act as a check on voter fraud. Because like, you always get these stories come out where someone does a write-in vote that's a name so that they can intentionally check later when the votes are counted to see if that one write-in vote was counted. Mm. Very often it's not, which uh, doesn't make you feel super secure in democracy. Mm. So we're yeah. going to have to check everywhere, aren't we? Or I will. To yeah. find where we where we've been voted, yeah, you can or or <laughs> great early twenty sixteen can be a check on the integrity of your local polling station. <laughs> yeah, it's the canary. Yeah, it's like a warrant canary, right? Great twenty sixteen on your ballot, and then you see if if you got any votes. Uh, remember, people, I'm top of the ticket. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think this is perfect. Yeah, that's what people can do. I'm looking forward to election season. Yeah, we're gonna win. I don't know. I was like trying to remember our own platform. <laughs> what was it? It was, oh, it was an iPad in every house and automation in every app. Yeah. Perfect. Make iPad great again. Make iPad great again. So you went ahead and did it. You've uh, put your application out that we were talking about last time for uh, the freelance animation work. Mm, yes. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> How's it going so far? I don't know. I, I said in the uh, I said in the application that I wasn't going to look at entries until tomorrow, and I haven't. So I have, I have no idea how it's going. Do you know if any are coming in? I do know that a bunch have come in. Okay. Because I have arranged a system with my assistant, my <laughs> I guess like now slight member of HR department assistant uh, surprise promotion. Uh, she has been receiving all of the various applications. She has been putting the information into a spreadsheet with some secret checks behind the scenes that I also want some information that's put uh, in a little spreadsheet. And then she is also taking the videos and she is giving them all a number and putting them all into a Dropbox folder for me to view. So I'm not exactly sure how many videos are in that uh, Dropbox folder right now, but I know there's there's a bunch and I'm going to take a look through them and... This is the way that I, I want to do it. I just want to have a number. I don't want to know anything about the person. I just want to see the video. Yeah. And so this way I can say, oh, yes, uh, <laughs> ID number 1245, this person was good. Come forward and collect yeah. your papers. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> you know, I, I can say, oh, you know, the, these three, these three are good. And then let's move on from here and see, okay, like, you know. Did this person send a portfolio? Did they do a bunch of other stuff? That's that's the way I'm doing it. So I, I will not be looking at the applications first because the most relevant thing to me is how well can it be animated. And I'm just going to look at those. I'm going to look at them clean with just a file number. And that's how it's going to start. So I know people have sent in applications, but I haven't actually looked at any yet. So I don't know if they're any good. You're not going to know this, but I'm just going to mention it for the listeners who will all know this. Mm. I just realized that the video that you created with your voiceover that people will take, mm-hmm. the gradient, the colors that you have look just like the new Instagram logo. Oh, okay. 
I know that was going to be your answer, but now people can go and look at that and be like, oh, wow, they, they, they took the idea from you. So if you hate the Instagram logo, you can, you can uh, blame Gray for that one. Um, I don't have an Instagram. Of all the people in my life to assume would not have Instagram, it would be you. Okay. Like, what are you going to post there? Pictures of your food? Just protein bars and bolts, things like that. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Perfect. Plates of nuts and bolts that you just chow down on for your robot power. Yeah. I like the system of just randomly looking at videos rather than you looking at the applications themselves because the thing that you want to be judging people on is the work, not anything about them as a human. Yeah, like the, the work is the thing that is the most relevant. And I also figure that this is the way... I mean, again, I don't know how many of these I'm going to be looking at. Hopefully lots. Uh, but I figure this is the fastest way to be able to go through something. Because... I mean, just, you know, obviously I've been thinking a lot about hiring and I've been having some interesting conversations with people. And, and this is one of these cases where in my attempt to to work with someone in this particular situation, their, their resume is not really relevant. The, yeah. it's, like, the only thing that is relevant is how well they can do this. And so if someone sends me you know a resume and says oh I, you know i went to this design school and i went to this design school and i'm certified in adobe illustrator and i'm certified and like okay man like that's great uh but i don't i don't really care <laughs> you know like uh i only care if if this thing can be done uh you know it's and if this is if this is your first attempt at ever doing any kind of animation and you do it well the flip side, like, I don't care either. You know, if you're if you're brand new, but you, you just learned Adobe Illustrator and you gave it a go and you did a good job, it's like fantastic. Welcome aboard. Like this is yeah. this is the thing this is the thing that is relevant to me. Uh so that's why I don't I figure I'll watch the videos first and then I'll I'll look at what has come through on email secondarily. Yeah, because something else uh, I hadn't thought, but I saw you um reply to a Reddit comment about this. There was not necessarily one person Who's gonna? You know, you have like multiple golden tickets to come and look inside the CGB Grey Factory. Oh, golden tickets, huh? I just considered how much this is like Willy Wonka. I I don't see the connection. Nobody's see seen all. you in many years. Oh. There is, you know, there is a, a factory in which amazing things are put together for the enjoyment of millions. Mm-hmm. It's just like Willy Wonka, and now you've. Uh, opened up to the world for somebody to come in, you know, and they're going to be put through a set of trials to see if they will be the the true and pure person who okay. can uh, help you out at the end. Well, as long as I'm Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka, and I'm not Johnny Depp, Willy Wonka. That is the only one. The Gene Wilder movie is a far superior movie. Yeah, okay. So I just want to make it clear. Yeah. No. Crystal. In, in, this, in this analogy. <laughs> in this analogy, I'm Gene Wilder. <laughs> right. Yeah, I do not want to be Johnny Depp in this analogy. Am I like an Oompa Loompa then? I guess I am, right? If you want to do that to yourself, go right ahead. <laughs> I guess it's the only thing that I can be in this yeah. scenario, right? Because I work with you already, and they're the only people that work with him already. Right. Yeah. I'm just. That's a shame. Like, I can see the photoshops already, Mike. <laughs> it's going to be great. I can't wait for it. But yes, so moving right along from the inevitable bearded photoshops of Mike as an Oompa Loompa. Yes. <laughs> In this scenario, yeah, it's having having put out this job application, it's interesting to to see like a, a challenge of, of 
clarity sometimes where there are things which are, are sort of clear in my mind and then you you look at what you've done and you go like oh obviously there's no reason this would be clear to anybody and uh yes w- one of those things is when i said i was looking for freelance help i've i've always been thinking that in in my absolute perfect perfect world i would love to find at least two people that i could work with right and it's it's precisely because since I know this is going to be at least from the start freelance work, I I would want to because the primary person that I might want to work with might not always be available. And so I have had this experience with music where there are several people who I can have on tap to help with music. But that's partly because each of them isn't always available precisely when I need them to be available. So, uh, yeah, it's it's not that there's just going to be, oh, there is a single person. I am going to be making a, a list of however many people I think that it is possible to work with. And uh, at least at the start, try to move move forward in that way. Now, again, I'm still I'm still a little worried uh, because I am looking for a kind of perfect person that I I will not find what I'm looking for on this round one. Yeah. And that I will have to do a, a round two or, or a second approach for this. So again, this is my theoretically perfect scenario is that I would find two or more people that I could work with. Uh, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to put like betting odds on it. I'm going to say there's a 25% chance that I get what I want in, in the first round. I don't know. We'll have to see. I actually think that finding someone in the first round or two people in the first round that are perfect is actually not the best thing that could happen. I think the the genuinely i think the better thing is to find people that are kind of there and that you can help develop yeah this again let me let me try to clarify what i mean by perfect here because what i'm looking for is someone who has talent right someone who someone who's able to do this thing well and again thinking back to my experience of being a teacher it, it was interesting always to see that there were kids who I could immediately say like, oh, this kid is talented. It doesn't mean that they're doing everything exactly right the first time around. But it does mean that compared to the majority of their untalented peers, like this would be the kid you would want to work on Project X. And so that that is my feeling in this this round of applications is, is when I say perfect, I really mean that there there's someone who they've done a competent enough job the first time around, and but what I'm really looking for is this this difficult to define talent of of some sort, and I think like one one of the things I will be looking for when I'm watching the the videos, for example, is because I, <laughs> we could talk about this now, because of course, this episode of Cortex is going to go up after, in theory, I actually look at things. So I can kind of reveal the secrets here. One of the things I'm going to be looking for is, did the person do something interesting or unexpected with the way they chose to animate a particular section? And I think that, that kind of thing is is a marker of talent. Because... I have in my mind, okay, if I had to animate this script, I know roughly what I would put on the screen in each of these sections, but what I would actually want to see is someone who did a little section differently than I would have done it, and that either provokes like a, like a smile or a laugh from me in this unexpected manner. And, and that's very difficult to define, 
And that's not something I'm going to write out in the job application. Because I think that people who are talented would just naturally do that. But they, they wouldn't be able to, to not do that. So that's one of the things when I'm looking through this that I'm, I'm going to be kind of keeping an eye out for is, was I surprised? Did you do this in an interesting and, and unexpected way? But that's not the same thing as literally expecting that somebody is going to create a video that looks exactly like I made it. That's what you should, should sort of be aiming for, but that's not necessarily the thing that I am explicitly and only looking for when I'm actually reviewing the videos. I think of it like a tribute band. Okay. Like, they do it in the style of CGB Grey, right? But it has its own flair in some way. I think that that's the key. Yeah, maybe. I know nothing of your music analogies, so I'm going to assume that that's spot on. <laughs> right? <laughs> but this was, this is again, this is one of these things where you realize, like, oh... When I was writing this out, I was thinking, oh, there's two things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for an animator and an illustrator. But there's really three things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for an animator, an illustrator, and someone who, who has this undefinable little spark of talent. And that's one of those, you know it when you see it kind of things. And so we will, we will know... I guess the next time we record Cortex, because by then yep. I'm looking at it on Friday, which as we are recording right now is tomorrow... And I will be continuing to look at it as stuff comes in because that was not a, a finalized deadline. But by the time we record the next Cortex, I think there will be some information about whether whether or not I'm going forward or whether I am thinking about how to approach a round two of hiring. Well, I will look forward to it. I, I wish I was future me right now and already knew what had happened. Did you intend Friday the 13th? Such as a happy accident. It was just a pleasant accident. Do you want to know why? Because it roots out pointlessly suspicious people. <laughs> Ooh, Friday the 13th is unlucky. I don't know if I want to... Already it's over. The conversation's over. Done. <laughs> right. I'm sorry, next. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. It's like Kingdom, but with a P. Pingdom's job is to make sure that your website stays up. Do you run your own website? Do you run your own service online? Well, Pingdom uses more than 70 global test servers to evaluate that your site is working the way that it should. As often as every minute, they can check not just that your website is up, but that your contact forms are working, that your e-commerce checkouts are working, that logins are working, that search functionality is working. Just about every part of your site, they can test to make sure that it is up. And if it breaks, they will let you know right away. If you're running your own service to sell stuff on the internet, you want to know when something's not working, when suddenly the money stops. Without Pingdom, how are you going to find out? I don't know. Some random customer sends you an email about it 16 hours later to let you know about all of the money that you've been missing out on. Yeah, I guess they'll email you if that contact form on your website is working. But maybe that's broken too. You've got to make sure that this stuff is working because the internet breaks all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's 400,000 problems every day. 
data centers break, you update some part of your website and you don't realize that it breaks some other totally seemingly unrelated but actually deeply interconnected part of your website, Pingdom detects the outage so you'll immediately be alerted so you can fix the error before it affects you and before it affects your users. When someone comes to your website to buy something, you want to know that it is up and that it is available for them to literally give you money. Now, for listeners of Cortex, you can get a 14-day free trial when you go to pingdom.com and use offer code Cortex. But not only is it a 14-day trial, you'll also get 20% off at checkout. Pingdom is a new sponsor to Cortex, so I want to thank them for trying out the show and also thank you for checking out Pingdom. Pingdom.com, offer code Cortex. For as long as I've known you, there has been something that I've been interested in asking you. What is Dvorak and why do you use it? You know what Dvorak is, Mike. Oh, I know what it is. Uh-huh. It's the, it's a weird way to, to arrange a keyboard, but I want you to explain Dvorak to people that don't know what it is and then say, like, what is it? It's not a weird way to arrange a keyboard. Abnormal? Abnormal would be correct, because, of course, the normal way to arrange a keyboard is the so-called QWERTY layout, Mm -hmm. where QWERTY is the word on the top left of your keyboard. If you can look at a keyboard right now, listener, that's what you will see. Uh, Dvorak is named after a person, I think. I don't even know. Um, But Dvorak is an alternate keyboard layout that I have used for a long time. And the, the primary selling feature of Dvorak is that um, in a in a QWERTY keyboard, the letters are arranged in such a way. I think so. One of the things that's happening very often is um, like you're alternating hands. Now, there, there's a whole there's a whole lot of I think urban legends around the QWERTY keyboard layout that every time I have attempted to investigate, mostly seem like just BS or just so stories that get repeated over and over again. Like I think the actual origin of this stuff is a bit lost in in time yeah the 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 generally accepted reason for the qwerty being as it is is to it was created so it would stop typewriters from jamming up because in theory the letters would be far away from each other so they would like the little arms whatever they're called wouldn't be hitting each other that's like the generally accepted reason that's usually the thing that you, you hear from people. I remember looking into it a while ago and, and when I was thinking about doing a video on this and just not coming to a satisfactory resolution. And, and that, that to me, I don't know. It may be true. It may not be true. But there are some things that my brain always follow, files away as suspiciously just so stories. Because if that is like true that they, if, like, if they're close together, they jam up. If your name is Terry, you'd hate to use a typewriter. I actually have typed on a mechanical typewriter like that, and it is a real pain in the butt when when it jams. I've very briefly spent some time in a teaching course where they actually use mechanical typewriters. I was like, you've got mm. to be kidding me. Ye oldie CGP gray. I mean, ma- mainly just ye oldie school equipment is what it actually was. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know. I used a typewriter as a kid just for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, like th- there was one in my house. It was an electric typewriter that I think my mm-hmm. granddad had. And I used to write out little stories on it. But it was before we had a computer. Like mm-hmm. This was in, I guess, the very early 90s when we didn't have a computer at home. Mm-hmm. So I used to, you know, as a kid, instead of writing out my stories in like Microsoft Word or whatever, which my younger brother did, uh, I wrote them out on an electric typewriter. 
Mm-hmm. It was fun, but typewriters <laughs> suck because if you make a mistake, which you do a lot when you're like four years old, you ruin everything. Yeah, you you ruin everything. X X X X X X everywhere. Yeah, yeah, right. Or you you backspace over it with whiteout, which never looks right. Like that paper that it slams down is typewriters are terrible old technology. So yeah, I I don't know if that's true or not, and frankly it's, it's like of no interest to me whether it's true or not like i don't really care this is also one of those things where it may just be a network effect where there was a keyboard layout it happened to gain a little bit of popularity and that popularity feeds on itself and it becomes a standardized thing and there's not actually any explanation for this right it's just like oh okay one of them was going to succeed and this happens to be the one that succeeded end of story there there isn't anything to to say about it but the Dvorak keyboard is intentionally designed to minimize finger travel. And perhaps one of the, the best examples of this is if you think on a normal QWERTY keyboard and you look where you put your hands on the home row, assuming that you can touch type, uh, probably the, the, the most egregious thing on the QWERTY keyboard is that underneath your right hand pinky, you have the colon and semicolon key, which are probably not super frequently used uh, whereas on the Dvorak keyboard that is the letter s underneath your right hand pinky and underneath your left hand on the Dvorak keyboard are a whole bunch of vowels it's a o e u and i are right there on the home row for your left hand whereas on, on the QWERTY keyboard you have just a and then vowels are kind of spread all over the place so the fundamental idea is that when you are typing words with a Dvorak keyboard, the amount that your hands need to move is less than with a QWERTY keyboard. Now, again, many people who promote Dvorak, they use all kinds of reasons. They talk about like, oh, you can type faster on a Dvorak keyboard. And I always feel like, again, this is not really relevant to me. Like, the, the speed of my typing is not the limiting factor in my life. That is not the reason I use a Dvorak keyboard. I switched from QWERTY to Dvorak many, many years ago now, back when I was, I believe, a, a young sophomore in college. Here is, as best I can remember, the gist of what happened. I was always, as you can imagine, quite a nerdy child. Uh, I loved computers and would spend all the free time that I could in high school on the computer that the family had in the house. But when I went off to college, I was now free of all constraints, right? There were, there were no parents telling me to get off a computer. Uh, once you go to college, the amount of time that you actually have to spend in classes is much, much less, uh, which is fantastic. And... I was on the computer just all the time. And then when you add on to this, I also, as people do in college, experimented with Linux on my computer. And so I was using Linux as my main system. And I really got into the terminal and like typing all commands on, on the computer and doing everything with a non-graphical interface. And I even at one point was running a system that just had no GUI installed at all. Like it was everything was just command line. And I totally loved it. And I was using Emacs. And I just, I was typing on the computer all of the time, all of my free time. And over the course of probably about a year and a half, that just like recently happened with animation, that caught up with me. And I had a sudden very bad onset of pain in my hands that 
just put a screeching halt to my typing. And I went to the school nurse and they're like, oh yeah, your forearms are horrifically inflamed. Have you been typing on a computer a lot? And of course my answer was, well, does every single moment of my free time count as a lot? And they're like, yeah. And so of course, I I still wanted to type on a computer. I wasn't going to stop typing on a computer. And it just so happened, it just lucked out that when I had this bout of real pain in my hands, it came exactly at a semester break in university. And I had about two or three weeks off from school. What I decided to do was I took a break from typing on the computer at all for those couple of weeks to try to relax, get my hands back in, in normal condition. So I remember spending what seemed like an incredibly long time without a computer, just reading books and watching TV and thinking like, oh man, I really wish I could be on the computer now, but I can't. After that, after that break, when I didn't need to type anything, when I came back to school, I decided I was going to switch keyboard layouts. I was going to learn Dvorak because I had read that for some people with RSI, they find this beneficial. And I thought, well, I have to try something because I'm certainly not going to type less. So I need to try to fix this system-wise. And I switched to a Dvorak layout. And if anyone has ever tried to do this, to try to learn a different keyboard layout, the thing that you will experience is this feeling like your brain is broken when you try to type. Because when you are good at typing on the computer, you feel like you're just expressing your thoughts right from your mind and you're feeding it into the computer. And then when you switch layouts, it's like you've had a stroke and you need to relearn how to walk. It yeah. just, it, it's so frustrating. You feel like, I used to just do this thing without thinking, and now suddenly I'm incapable of doing this. And because the act of typing is the act of thinking, it's just this feedback loop of like, my brain is broken it's it's very it's a very very frustrating thing to do it's very frustrating to switch that alone though especially for someone like you feels like a reason not to use Dvorak right like that that's switching because it's not available everywhere it's actually not available on the iPad at all in software right unless you install something external yeah, I mean, I mean, you're talking about, like, switching costs here? Is that what you mean by this question? Yeah, because you're switching constantly. Well, okay, first of all, I, I mean, you're, you're talking about a time long before iPads were even a glint in Steve Jobs' eyes at this point. I was working with my own personal computers and essentially nothing else. Like, I didn't have to use anybody else's computer. And so switching over on my computer that I was using all the time was not a big deal. I didn't, I did not, I was in an environment where I didn't have to move back and forth between QWERTY and Dvorak. I could focus just on my one computer and, and just relearning it there and doing everything there. Right. And, and my tip, my tip, if anybody does want to switch to Dvorak, I don't know if this is the best way to do it, but at least is the way I did it at the time. Because I was so frustrated with this feeling of like, I can't type and I also found trying to do typing programs again was super frustrating. Uh, you know, like you, you can just run any typing program and you change over your keyboard and, and you like relearn how to type just like you learned to touch type the first time. I, I hated that as well. I felt like, oh God, this is just so slow. It's taking forever. I don't have time for this. The trick that I found that worked beautifully was I printed out a Dvorak layout on a, on a piece of paper 
and I taped it to the top of my computer monitor. And so what I did was I would look at that piece of paper when I wanted to type and then type on the keyboard that was in front of me. And when I did that, it took me only about two weeks to get back to basically where I was. And it also allowed me to type very slowly, but it allowed me to, quote, touch type uh, on a Dvorak keyboard, uh, but just at a really slow pace. So I found that that was the only way I was able to to switch. I'm not sure if I had if I tried to do it a different way, I would have been able to stick with it. Do you prefer Dvorak to QWERTY? Or do you just switch back and forth for the, the same reasons that you switch back and forth between mice and uh, trackpads and etc.? Okay, well, I don't really switch back and forth between QWERTY and Dvorak because on all, on all of my devices, I have it set up to be a Dvorak keyboard. Uh, so like on my laptop, on my computer, it's a Dvorak keyboard. When I worked in, in schools, I was able to have the, the computers there they were able to just switch over to Dvorak keyboards, which is, by the way, also an excellent, great way to, to stop having kids messing with your computer if you leave it for a few seconds. If the keyboard is totally messed up from their perspective, they can't type anything. It's like, so, a, it's like a security feature. I assume when you say that you're changing it in software, but the hardware keyboard is still QWERTY. Yeah. Like, I am talking to you right now, and I am recording, uh, I am recording on my laptop today. And my laptop has a regular QWERTY keyboard in it. You know, it's just the regular 15-inch PowerBook. And you can't change the keyboard on there. Powerbook. Oh, whatever. Your Powerbook running OS X. Yeah, exactly. Who cares about this? It doesn't matter anymore. Lots iPads are the people. future. Yeah, I know that. I, I can get, I'm on board with that train. <laughs> Not me. I don't care. Whatever. With your iBooks or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Uh, so you can't change it in, in hardware. You can just change it in software. And this, this is where you have to know how to touch type. So you, if, if you're looking at the keyboard, well, you're just... You're just out of luck, right? You can't you can't move around the physical keys on on most modern computers, so it's it is just changed in software. So when I worked at a school, and I would log on to the computer, uh, their their Windows computers were smart enough that one of the saved preferences for me as a user was to swap around the keyboard layout so that it was Dvorak while I was typing. But it did mean that if anybody else tried to type on my computer, they could type nothing, which was fantastic from my perspective. I really enjoyed that. So what do you do on iOS devices? Do you use QWERTY keyboards there, or do you install like third-party keyboards? Okay, so I guess this is this is the closest it comes to switching, which is for the history of iOS, you have had to use the inbuilt system keyboard and whatever it was last year, two years ago. They did add custom keyboards, but they did it in the most half-hearted way ever. And so they just don't really work. You can't really rely on them. There are some situations where I will happen to use them, but it is extraordinarily rare. Uh, It's like, oh, thanks. Thanks, Apple. Thanks for that checkbox feature that just totally doesn't work at all. Third-party keyboards, yeah, we have them. You never want to use them, but we have them. But I actually never really found this a problem. And even when I got an iPhone, it, it didn't really cross my mind about that it was a QWERTY layout versus a Dvorak layout. Because when you're typing on your phone, you're typing with your thumb. And especially when I first got my uh, iPhone 4, which was the first iPhone I had, I was just typing with one thumb because the screen is so small. And so my brain treated this as just a 
totally different method of input. Like this is unrelated to touch typing. This is a completely separate skill. And so learning how to type on an iPhone was for me, I think the same experience that many people had when they got their first iPhone of, oh, okay, this is a different way of typing. I have to just learn how to type on this tiny screen. And then as time has progressed, this is one of the reasons why uh, I use almost exclusively the split keyboard on my smaller iPads, on the, the not 12-inch iPads, because I am really used to typing with my thumbs on an iOS device. My brain just says, this is the way to type on iOS. There is no other way, and there's no conflict here in my brain with Dvorak or this. It's just a totally, totally different system. However, my big iPad Pro has brought something interesting to light in my brain, which is that my knowledge of how to touch type with QWERTY is still there. It's it's still deeply buried in my brain in a way that is surprising to me because... As we complained about when the iPad Pro first came out, there is no split keyboard on the iPad Pro. Uh, You can't do the thing where it goes into just thumb typing. You have to type with a big full keyboard across the bottom. And you can't change around the letters. You have to type with a QWERTY keyboard on there. And there are various situations where, for whatever reason, I, I do end up typing on the glass instead of flipping around the keyboard cover that I do always have attached. So sometimes I type on the glass. And what I have discovered is... If I don't think about it, I can totally touch type QWERTY, but for about one sentence of length. And after one sentence, this thing happens where my brain goes, hey, you're touch typing on a QWERTY keyboard. And then you start overthinking it. Yeah, right. Like my brain just totally crashes. And then for a moment, I cannot type. And what what I have to do is going back to looking at the keyboard and and typing like how I used to when I was a little kid before I learned how to touch type, which was like this funny thing that I did with three fingers instead of like a a regular one. But this happens every time that if I don't think about it, I can type for just a little bit, but I will totally notice it. And then it's just, oh, I can't, I can't type. I just broke me doing this thing. But I find it really funny. It's like there's, there's some part of my brain which never forgot how to do this. And was just waiting and waiting dormant for apparently an iPad Pro to come around where I had to type with a QWERTY keyboard. There's another one of those things that people say um, in which like if birds could comprehend the way that they fly, they wouldn't be able to fly. Yeah. Right? You're like that, but with keyboards. Yeah. If you can comprehend QWERTY, you can't type anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's just a funny thing and it makes me laugh every time. And it's it's one of those moments where you just realize how strange brains are mm-hmm. that this is this is just unexpected behavior like one it is unexpected that after having not typed on a qwerty keyboard in like 13 to 15 years i can still do it but then if i realize i'm doing it now it doesn't work like how, how like how does this work brain how does this make any sense like oh the answer is it doesn't make any sense because brains are weird that's the that's the answer I think I've told you this, but I never learned to touch type. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So, like, I can do a bunch of typing without looking at the keyboard, but I will make mistakes. And most of the time, I will just glance down every now and then to make sure I'm where I need to be. Like, I don't, you know, I don't have the placement 
idea, you know, like where you're supposed to put your hands to rest them. Mm-hmm. So you, I don't know any of that. I was never taught. I think I was coming into like the first generation in school where they didn't teach typing. Hmm. Nobody, like nobody that I know, knows how to do this. Like, it, which is so weird because now it's more important. Okay. Do you mean that you were like the last generation to not be taught typing? Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not sure I know what that sentence is saying, but yeah, it sounds, sounds legit. I am a generation who knew nothing. Something, <laughs> something typing. Yeah. I find that surprising given uh, the age difference between us. Since, since you are, are younger than me, I would have assumed that someone your age would just learn touch typing as, as part of going through school. Because when I did it, it was an elective that my parents just signed me up for. Yeah. You know, they, they decided, oh, this is a skill you're going to learn. You're just, you're just signed up for the typing class. And I definitely, at the time rejected the idea that I needed to do, go to typing class because I was very fast at typing already with this three finger method that I that I used mm-hmm. like looking at the keyboard and just typing very fast I was like I don't need to learn how to touch type I can totally do this thing but I'm very I'm very glad that I did learn how to touch type against my will as a younger as a younger person yeah see I stuck to the fast three finger method mm-hmm. which I still use today. so you still do that yeah <laughs> and like a bunch of people like Federico is the same like he's a hunt and pecker oh really yep hmm I think we're just part of like a, a a weird generation where it stopped. And my understanding is that, that you don't typing doesn't exist in schools now. I don't know if we have many listeners who are in high school or or secondary level, but uh, if you are in in high school and you listen to the show, I would be very curious if in the Reddit you said if you like, do you do typing in schools? Or for or for parents who have kids in school now, like do you, is typing an official skill that that your kids learn, like touch typing? I'd, I'd be curious to know. And or do you care? Yeah, that's what I'm more interested about. Like, do, do you care if you know how to touch type? One of the things that I I was quite struck by uh, when I when I was teaching and t- towards the later years of of my my limited teaching career. All of the kids had either iPhones or iPod touches that they were using as proxy iPhones yep. you know, that were just connected to the local school network and it was a way for parents to get in touch and all, and all the rest of this. And I noticed that tons of the kids could do this thing that I would not have believed was possible if I didn't see it, which was typing on the screen without looking. I can do that. See, this is this is younger person magic to me. Well, but the thing is, though, it's not accurate. You are helped by autocorrect, right? Yeah, but it does, but it doesn't matter, right? This <laughs> is like if autocorrect is helping or not. It it's, it doesn't make any difference to me. It's like, yeah, sure, what? With- I mean, but it's it's slightly. I know I know exactly what you're saying, but like it's it's different to touch typing in that there is an assistant which is helping you with it. But yeah, it's still there's still an element of knowing the area in which you have to hit your thumbs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I tell you what, I'm gonna do. What? I'm going to set up a Google form oh, yeah? to try and find out this information because this is interesting to me now. Like, do you know how to touch type? Do you care? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like kind of what age bracket are you and can you type on screens without looking? Do you mm-hmm. have any plans to learn? So I'm going to yeah. set that up. I'll put that in the show notes and, and mm-hmm. we can we can assess the results of that next time. Yeah, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very curious to see it. Uh, but what, where I was going with this though is that so I saw the kids doing this and I, I still remember I was asking I was asking this one girl like can you are you typing without looking at the screen 
And she was like, oh, yeah, I, I can totally. They're like, no, no, prove it to me. Like, come up here right now. Like, I, like, I need to, like, and I was supposed to be doing physics, but this is way more interesting to me. And so she demonstrated, like, yeah, she could totally do it. She could look at me and type a coherent sentence. It's like, that's magic. I don't understand how you can do that. Only CGP Grey, the teacher, would discover a child in class texting, <laughs> then bring her to the front to find out something he's interested in. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Tort can wait. They must have loved you, man. <laughs> it must have loved you <laughs> but i went home to tell my wife this astounding piece of information to, to me and discovered that she was surprised that i was surprised that people could do this because this is just what she did and she never even thought about it right like it just never even crossed her mind that this was a skill of any note whatsoever and as ios has become increasingly important in my life i went through a long time of of trying to learn how to type this way, of very consciously, like, no, I I will master this skill that children can do. I will type, and I will not look at the keyboard, and I will look at what I am typing. But I I just failed repeatedly. I even went so far as I bought uh, a program called, uh, it's like called Tap Typing, I think. It's a a pretty good typing tutor on iOS. And I blocked out a, a part of my schedule every day to do touch typing lessons with a thumb keyboard on the iPhone and with a split keyboard on the iPad. And I just could never, ever get that skill. It was just totally lost to me. It was, it was totally unavailable. It's like trying to learn a language as an older person. For some reason, like my brain just was not able to pick that up see what i just sent to you i just sent you an iMessage that i typed out without looking oh is that what you did Uh uh-huh well aren't you aren't you clever i'm very clever this this is this is not nearly as much proof as the girl who did it in front of me in class like you just you just sent me an iMessage this is proof of nothing all you need to do is give me the address of your office and i'll come and show you no no it's not gonna happen nice try nice try mike (laughs) (laughs) Just quick aside, how is the office going? Do you still have it? This is an interesting point to ask me about this office. Because, so this is my my writing monastery Mm. that I've set up for myself that we talked about a few episodes ago. Uh, Through entirely my own fault and and dumb mistakes, there was a, a period of a week where I was locked out of my own office because... I thought that a bill had been automatically paid when it had not been paid, and it took a while to get this sorted out. Uh, but I, I was locked out of, of my office for a week. And I thought, well, okay, I just have to work around this. I'm going to try to do what I normally do and go to different places to work and just like, I'll just, I'll just get on with this. And I noticed that, man, my writing ability just plummeted. That, that like this compared to having this regular routine, the regular routine increased the amount that I write every day and then not having access to this area and trying to go back to do it the old way. Granted, it's like disruptive, but it was still really interesting to see like, okay, this unintentional experiment has has revealed to me that unambiguously this writing office is totally worth it like without a doubt 100 percent worth it so uh yeah it's um i am able to declare it a success at this point good yeah 
But it's a success because it's just me. Yeah. Just me. Nobody else. No chairs for Mike. You haven't tried out the other way of doing it, though. Like, me and you. It could be so much better. Uh, I mean, that is true. I, I have not tried out having a mic in my office. But I, I think the data suggests that that is probably not a, a fruitful area of exploration. Well, you should check my data because I have the opposite result. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do, Mike. I'm sure you do. On this show, we're always talking about side projects and ideas and things that we want to try. And these days, all of these things need a website. And when you have a website, you need a great domain name. And finding that perfect domain is ridiculously easy with Hover. When all you're looking to do is get a great domain name for that website or email address, you shouldn't be forced with page after page of things that you want to opt out of because the company's trying to upsell you stuff. That's why Hover only offers domain and email services, so you're able to focus on finding that great domain name to get back to working on your great idea. Hover also believes that you shouldn't have to pay for things that should already be included with your domain. That's why they give you who is privacy for free with all of their supported domains to keep your information confidential. Most people don't realize that when you register a domain name, all of your contact information, including your address, your phone number, your email address, is published online for people to find, and it's all in the Whois database. Hover makes sure that they keep your private information private by offering you Whois privacy for free. Find the perfect domain name for your idea. Go to hover.com and use the promo code Dvorak, D-V-O-R-A-K at checkout to save 10% off your first purchase. Thank you so much to Hover for their support of this show and Relay FM. So you know the wheel that never stops turning that we can never get off of, Mike? What is the name of that wheel? It's the wheel of email. It's the wheel of email and email apps. Yes, that's where the the wheel has stopped today on the apps (laughs) section of the wheel. So um, I have been using a new email app for a while and... I wanted to talk about it for two reasons. One is that it's an email app that I have hardly ever seen recommended by anybody. And two, I am totally loving it. So I want to give it a little bit of Cortex love, right? I I would like to promote it and tell people about it so that if it sounds like it's for them, they can go try it out. Because uh, aside from the Apple Mail app, I have never used an email app that I am just so immediately happy with and, and really like. And that email app is called Unibox. Okay. Have you heard of Unibox, Mike? I think someone has sent it to me like as mm-hmm. a suggestion. And I looked at the screenshots and decided I didn't want anything to do with it. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm interested to see what you say. Because the reason I don't like it is it kind of tries to me to look like it's making email look like iMessage. And I don't want that. Okay, making email look like iMessage is not necessarily a bad description. But here, here is the way I would sell Unibox. And I think there is some portion of our audience, when they hear how this works, they will think, yes, I did not know that I wanted this, or I did know that I want this, but I just didn't know it was possible, and here's the solution. 
So Unibox's selling feature is that it groups all of the messages from a single person together. Ooh, listen to that. Listen to that intake of breath from Mike. Listen to that. Listen to that. Marvel in it. I eat these moments for breakfast. <laughs> Mike doesn't like this for his email. Tell me why you don't like this, Mike. No, that was a good intake of breath. Oh, was it? Yeah. I can't read you. I no. can't read you at all. You're like a sphinx. I'm an enigma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's good as in, this is interesting. I've never really considered this before, but I kind of like the sound of it. Okay. So th- so this came up because um, when I used to do email like so many things on my iMac, uh, very often I found it was just helpful to sort by sender. There's some times where you just want to find like, oh, I know I have a bunch of messages from one person. Let me just deal with them all together. And I, th- I thought that that was always useful. Like this was great. But then on iOS, there's nothing that really reproduces this. This this seems like it is not an option in very many email apps. It's just it's you can't tell mail.app to sort by sender. Uh you can't you can't do this. It's not it's just not a thing that that is practical. But what I really like is that that Unibox it's not that they allow you to sort by sender. It's that sort by sender is the only thing it does. And they have built the entire app around this idea. And it's like, oh, this is fantastic. Like, this is, this is really well done. So here conceptually is why you might want to do this. One of the things that we talk about on this show is mode shifting, right? Like, what, like what kind of work am I doing right now? What kind of work am I doing later? You know, what, what mental frame are you in? when you're performing a particular task. And it is helpful to consolidate mental frames into larger and larger chunks. Like this is just a more effective way to work. And within email, one of the things that is often so frustrating about email is that it's it's this slew of who knows what. Like, oh, okay, uh, here is a message from my parents. Here is a message from my lawyer. Here is a newsletter from some place that I signed up to a long time ago. Here's an automated message from my bank, right? Like there's just these very, very different levels of things. Like you never know what's coming through. But when it's all grouped together by sender, you can, it's like there's less mode shifting that can occur. And so for me in particular, one of the things that I love is I can open up Unibox and when you say it makes it makes email look like iMessage, it's because on the side of the screen, it does look quite like iMessage. It looks like there's a, a list of, of people like you have in iMessage and at the top is the person who has contacted you the most recently and then as you go down the list, it's less and less recent. But the thing is, if you click on the person at the top, it will show you all of the messages from that person in one place. And so I find it super helpful to say like, oh, okay, my lawyer has sent me something. But when I click on that, I want to be able to see all of the messages 
from my lawyer that I have to deal with right now. And then it's it's like, okay, I am in the mode of dealing with the kinds of questions this person is going to ask. And then I can just go, okay, reply, reply, reply. You know, or for example, like my assistant sends me a bunch of stuff, I click on her name, and it's okay, great. Here are the seven messages that she has sent me since the last time I looked at email, and I can just boom, 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 go through all of these, being in the mindset of I'm I'm replying to her with answers to things about questions that she needs, right? So it's like, we're just going to go through this. And then what's great is I really love it for things like Amazon notifications, right? Like Amazon sends you messages about like stuff that you've bought or whatever. Here's where the building the app around the idea of sender is fantastic because there are little gestures that you can do where you can say something like just archive all of these messages from Amazon, just all of them at once. And so what you're not doing is say answering a message from your lawyer and then seeing a receipt from Amazon and then archiving that one message from Amazon and then replying to a message from someone else and then Oh, again, pops up Amazon. Oh, yes, just archive this one too. Like, no, no, no. You just deal with all of them at once. And it is fantastic. I, I think it is It is a really, really interestingly designed app. And I have to say, it's got to be one of the most effective ways to get through email, especially with these little gestures where you can just deal with senders all at once. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge, a huge fan of this. All right, so... Let's say that I've sent you an email on Monday and an email on Wednesday and an email on Sunday, and mm-hmm. then you come to this on Sunday and you mm-hmm. deal with the Sunday message. What happens to the Monday and Wednesday messages? Because if they're grouped together by sender, isn't it like easy to just miss things because they're not in a thread? Okay. There's a, there's a weird little feature that... It took me a while to figure out, like, what the, what the hell do you want me to do, application? And then once I understood it, I was like, oh, okay, fantastic. So there's an iMessage list on the left-hand side of the screen where, like I said before, you can do archive all of these messages. You can swipe to the left, and you can set whatever the gesture is, like just send it all to archive, right? Mm-hmm. But if Mike has sent me a bunch of messages... On the screen where I'm looking, the the message that you sent me most recently, let's say you sent me a message yesterday, that's up at the top. The app has this like hidden feature that was tricky to figure out, but if I reply to your message, I can then swipe just on the subject of your message and perform whatever actions I want to from there. Okay. So w- what I can do is swipe on the subject, and I've set it up so like if I just swipe right, it'll archive the message I have just replied to, and then it immediately pulls up the next most recent message that you sent me. So does it collapse the threads together? So like if we're talking about one thing and we've got five emails going back and forth, does it keep those together in like one smaller window so you can still see that there's other stuff hiding in the background? All right. So now if we have a if we have had a threaded message, right? Uh-huh. So we're replying and it has the same subject line, it keeps all of those together and it collapses it visually on screen. And there's a little um, there's like a little uh, arrow button on the bottom that you can click to expand the entire thread if you need to. 
but you can see the most recent thing for the thread at the top. And if you just start scrolling down, you can work your way backwards through the thread. So it keeps threaded conversations together. And then you can perform these swipe gestures on a thread as a bunch if you want to. Does that make sense? You're going to make me do that thing now where I have to enter in five email accounts. (laughs) All right, this sounds interesting. This is a a different take on email that intrigues me enough that I want to try it. Yeah. What this reminds me of is when we had our conversation about email apps a while ago, I I mentioned, uh, I believe it was MailPilot 2 was one of these apps where I don't remember the details now, but my feeling was, oh, they have designed this around doing email in a different way. And if your mind is lined up with this way of dealing with email, you're totally going to love this. But that it wasn't for me, but it was one of those apps where I could see like, you're doing email differently. And I think Unibox is might not be that extreme, but it's along those lines of you're thinking about this a little bit differently. You're thinking about it in terms of senders and dealing with senders very quickly and having this customizable swiping gestures that are different for uh, like the everything that this person has sent or just this current message and or thread that you're you're dealing with. But if you can get your mind wrapped around that, it's I really, really recommend it. I have to say it's 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 a very interesting take on it, and it is it is very well done. And yes, I think that it is worth it for you to uh, put in all of your email apps. Can I also mention, I have to mention, they have one of the cleverest monetization things I have ever seen in terms of in-app purchases. So the app itself is free to try. You can use it. But if you want to remove the signature that says sent with Unibox. Genius. Then you have to buy the in-app purchase to remove that signature. That's a pro feature. I thought that was so clever when I saw that. I thought this is just, it made me smile. Like, yes, this is the exact perfect place for an in-app purchase to go. That if I want to use this thing for free, I need to give you free promotion on every email that I send. If I don't want to, I can pay you money, and this unlocks this feature. Like that, I, I I'm, that get that gets the CGP Grey Award for cleverest in-app purchase of 2016 so far. I, I thought it was just fantastic. Does this app do anything where it like f- up your email everywhere else? No, it does not. Okay, right. This is one of, this is also a thing that I like. It doesn't have crazy custom folders. Good. It's it's not doing custom IMAP crap. It's just straight up you have an inbox and you have an archive and you have a spam folder and that's the only thing it cares about. It's not doing any custom stuff. All right, so I've just loaded up my RelayFM email address into Unibox. Mm-hmm. And it's doing something that I consider to be horrific. Oh, okay. What is it what is it doing? Every email sent in a long list so I'll have like everybody. I don't want to see everybody. I want to just see what I haven't dealt with. Like that is uncomfortable to me. Okay, listener, would you just missed Mike might have, I'm going to assume that Mike put in like a little a little transition sound or something. But what you just missed was 
a, a fascinating moment of Mike and I trying to debug some setting that I must have changed that I didn't remember that Mike didn't have when he set up his Unibox email for the first time. And so we've saved you listening to all of that horror. And here is the setting that I changed, which I didn't even remember that I did. But in settings for Unibox, there's a thing that is called groups. And they have some kind of magic Unibox. And I disabled their magic Unibox. Exactly what that does, I don't know. I don't remember. I must have turned that off because I didn't like it. And now Mike is using this the way I want him to use this. So uh, if you, dear listener, load up Unibox and you're seeing emails from everybody in the whole world that you have ever contacted, uh, you want to turn off Unibox. And then you will just have messages from people who have contacted you that are also in your inbox. Okay, Mike, now, now that we're here, how's, how's it going? This is really weird. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is super weird. It's so super weird that I don't know how when I first downloaded this, I stuck with it at first. Because you can see there's a lot of very strange things right off the bat. But I love it. It is weird that you stuck with this. Because it is strange and I'm surprised you had the tolerance for it. Uh, there's one thing that um, I don't like about it. Um, it seems that you can't swipe on the group of the person to mark a message as read or unread. And I don't like that. Okay. You have to go into the individual message to do that, which is a really weird choice. And I'm looking in their swipe settings. This is probably also going to come out, by the way. Another example of a thing that was weird that I remember being my deepest frustration with it when I was trying to use it was in the settings, there's a a level that is called swipes. And this is what I was talking about before with gestures, where you can swipe to archive all of the message from a particular sender. So when you tap on the swipes option, it gives you two sub options, one of which is contacts and one of which is messages. And this is what you have to understand to make this work. And what I was so confused with is that you can set different swipe gestures for the list of people that you see on the left-hand side. That is what they're calling the contacts swipes. And then you can set a separate list of gestures for swiping on the title, the subject of a message that you are currently looking at. And you can you can arrange those however you want. And so the, the way I have it is so that I can just swipe on the name of a person on the left-hand side and say, archive all of the messages from them. But I've also set it up so that I can swipe on the subject of a message that I am looking at to immediately reply to that message. But it's, it's weird and it takes a while to get set up and talking through Mike for all of the stuff that you, dear listener, have been spared, it's reminding me that like, yes, it took a while for me to figure out what this app wanted. And now it seems so natural, I totally forgot all of the painful playing around part with it. Uh, and I've been trying to accelerate Mike past that. So like one of the things that I'm really struggling with is the choices that they make in the swipes. Mm-hmm. Like... On contacts, you can choose 
to mark a message as read mm-hmm. with a swipe, but it won't let you mark it again as unread. You have to do that on the message. I do see that, that you, you cannot add a mark as unread message. And then it's like, why? But like they have their own specific way of doing it is, is what I'm getting from this, is that this yeah. app just likes to do things in a strange and kind of weird way. Yeah. And this is what I'm looking at and seeing that this is a different way of doing email. Like, do you do all of your email in this app now? All right, I have a funny workflow. You have a funny workflow? I was, was going to try to avoid this, but since since you have brought this up, I guess I have to talk through this. Uh, so the, the what I always regard as the absolute killer feature of mail that is uh, no way to get around it for me is, is really two things. It's VIPs and alerts from particular threads. No other email app seems to have this. And and if they have it, it doesn't work in the way that I need it to. The ability to mark a contact as a VIP and have that person be pulled out as, a, as into a separate inbox from everybody else is invaluable to me. So I have a ton of people marked as VIPs. And it is also really valuable that if I change their email and their contact card, like Apple just knows it's the same person. They're still a VIP. I really wish they would add VIP domains that I could say everybody who sent a message from this domain is a VIP, but that's that's a that's a small feature, right? The VIP thing is valuable. I cannot possibly leave it. So this is my current workflow when I am triaging my email. Step one, I go to Unibox and I look for my assistant. I tap on her name and I can answer all of her messages because she is top of the triage priority list. Once I have cleared her messages, then I go over to mail.app and I start working my way through the VIPs because these are the people I have marked that I want them pulled above the masses of emails that I get largely from people that I don't know or just newsletters or all kinds of other stuff. Uh, And so I do spend a lot of time in mail because VIP messages almost by definition require a lot of time and attention to reply to because they're important things. So I'll work through the VIPs. And then this is where Unibox really shines because after I've gone through the VIPs and I switch back to Unibox, now a huge portion of the emails that are left over are automated messages of some kinds, like things that I need to see but that I don't necessarily want to have mixed in with the regular messages when I'm going through them. And so this second time of going to Unibox is a very different mental framework. It's like, all I want to do is I want to clear and archive most of this stuff because the chance that I'm going to reply to almost any of these messages is very, very low. And anything that I am going to reply to, there's a pretty good chance that what it is is that person should really be a VIP in, in my system. And so, like, when I get my messages from Hover about there's a domain that's going to be renewing sometime soon, it's great because I see, like, oh, Hover sent me a bunch of messages. Like, I can click on it. I can just quickly scroll through and see, yep, everything looked great with all of the various domains that they're talking about. Archive these 10 messages done, right, and just move on to the next thing. Oh, here's everything I bought from Amazon. Like, quick swipe through. Yeah, it all looks great. Fine. No problem. Archive done. And so that is that is my flow. It's... Unibox to pull out my assistant, 
then go to mail.appclearvips, then go to Unibox and try to just get through the rest of it as soon as possible. But Unibox is a fantastic tool for that. Fantastic. You have given me two things today. Uh Uh-huh. You have given me an app that I now need to play around with and Mm -hmm. potentially waste some time in. And you've also given me uh, a lot of work to do in the edit. (laughs) (laughs) From me to you, Mike. It's a gift. I hope you enjoy them. Today's episode is brought to you very kindly by the fine folk over at FreshBooks who are on a mission to help small business owners save time and avoid the stress that comes with running their businesses. I cannot tell you, I cannot stress enough just how much time and aggravation FreshBooks saves me every single week. When I sit down to send out all of my invoices, they make it a breeze. You can get an invoice set up and sent out in 30 seconds. They look fantastic. They give you tons of ways for people to pay you. FreshBooks customers get paid five days faster on average because they've very easily allow you to integrate a multitude of different ways for people to pay you. You're able to very easily keep track of things. They have great reports that show you how old invoices are, so you can very easily go in and check them. And when you do, you're able to see if a client has opened it, and then you'll be able to know exactly where you are in that process. You don't need to send any emails out to check on stuff. They'll send out late payment reminders for you if you like, so it's even one less thing to have to worry about. They do great expenses tracking. You can take pictures of receipts and save them in FreshBooks. It's super, super simple. And then you can just organize them for later. Support is so important to FreshBooks. If you give them a call, somebody's going to pick up. All the phones in the FreshBooks offices will ring if the support team are busy. You will get through to someone at FreshBooks who will be able to help you. I really, really believe in this product. I think that you're going to love it. If you use any type of invoicing software, take advantage of FreshBooks' 30-day free trial to listeners of this show no credit card required and you'll see just how great FreshBooks is to claim your 30 days of unrestricted use go to freshbooks.com slash cortex and enter cortex in the how you heard about a section so FreshBooks knows that you came to them from this show thank you so much to FreshBooks for their support of cortex and relay fm all right great let's do some ask cortex uh, don't forget if you want to send us any questions in for the show it's very easy you just tweet with the hashtag ask cortex it goes into a lovely spreadsheet and then we pick them out whenever we want to talk about them on the show okay linus wanted to know how much time is there between waking up and starting work for us i find this really interesting because i'm gonna go first on this one <laughs> immediately mm-hmm So the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is get my iPhone and look at Notification Center and see what's happened. Then I open Slack, then I open email, and I begin the day. I mean, I always always have to remember that you do a fundamentally different job than me. You do a job where that totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I know that that would be the fastest way to ruin my whole day, would be doing that. Yep. The difference is between (laughs) me and you, the fundamental difference is... You work on your own, and I work with other people. At least I, I mostly work on my own. Maybe not so much in the future, but for the time being. <laughs> yeah, that's going to change. Let me tell you, my friend, that's going to start to change for you soon. For the time being, I mostly work on my own. So yeah, it's it's di- the, your job is knowing while you were sleeping in London, did any of the people in, in the wrong time zone message you about things that they, they needed done? Yep. Like that, That's what you need to do. That is your work. And so waking up, checking notifications makes sense. Do you, do you even get out of bed for that? Or do you just reach over and grab the phone and, and look right at messages? Just reach over, man. Wow. Okay. I mean, that's, 
polluting the sanctity of the bedroom is what you're doing there. Well, sure. But what happens is I do this. I see if there's anything urgent. I respond to anything that I want to respond to. And then I will take a break for a while. I'll read Twitter. I might watch a YouTube video or two. Like I would then, like it's immediately the first thing that I do when I wake up. But then there's a break of a of a time period, however it might be, like an hour or two, before mm-hmm. I then get on with like show prep for the day. Mm-hmm. Right. So like mm-hmm. it's, I just basically I just want to know that nothing went crazy when I was sleeping. Right. You are performing an emergency triage. Yeah. Is there anything that's an emergency? If not, then I can just get on with with my day. Like, that's what you're doing. Because there will be a bunch of things that basically I wake up in the morning and then I add some stuff to OmniFocus because they're things that I need to look at. But Mm. if there is something crazy has happened, I do want to get on that as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. That works for you. That works for you. I think, you know. I don't know about looking at them literally in bed, but you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. Uh, you know, I'm I'm very accepting of the way other people work now. You know, it's it's a thing I'm trying to it? like. When did I'm that trying happen? To, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to be more relaxed about this kind of stuff. You know, this this is like my personal arc, my personal journey. Yeah, to be more chill about the way other people work, and it's fine. It's fine for them. Works more. For you. Where did you learn more chill? Because you keep saying this. <laughs> Who taught you more chill? Do I keep saying this? I don't you think you keep I do. saying it to me. <laughs> All right. So how does it go for you? You wake up. You kind of smell the roses a little bit. You walk around with your tiny phone. By the way, why did this never come up? You go and buy a tiny phone. I know nothing about it. I find out about it listening to your other show. Uh, so you pick up your tiny phone which hasn't got any apps on it and then you just go and take your lovely run through the canals of amsterdam or something no that's not that's not what it okay so there this question is tying into a a a bigger thing about routines that I, i think we should uh we should revisit at some point um but i i happen to know that at least right now it is a it is about 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes between the time when I wake up and I start to work. I spend a bunch of time, in no small part because of having uh, this this writing office, over the last many weeks rethinking what is my morning routine like, what is my, my normal schedule like. And what I do, and I've been very successful at doing, is trying as much as is possible to be prepared the night before for anything I need to to do in the day so that when I wake up, I can just head right out the door and head straight to my writing monastery and get to work as immediately as possible. And what I want to do is what I, I want to eliminate any possible roadblocks for that because I'm just trying to like smooth landing into the writing office. That's what I want. And so... The idea of waking up, I'm going to grab my backpack that has been prepared the day before. You know, I'm going to dress in clothes that I know are available. Like everything, everything's already been set. Like there's an outfit, there's a bag. I can just put that stuff right on, head right out the door, walk to the office. Uh, I've even eliminated, I used to get food on on the way into the office, but I've eliminated that step of the process. Uh, And I just have, um, I have like some tea that's in the office, able to be prepared really easily. So I can just 
head right in, make the tea, it's on the desk, and just immediately start getting to work. And that has been uh, that has been very successful for me. So I guess 30 minutes, 45 minutes, that's the answer? That's really what they wanted to know. Yeah, I'm not necessarily envious of that. Like, it sounds nice, but like, I like my morning routine. Mm-hmm. You know, because it is the idea of like, I check those things immediately, but then I take a nice break. Like, oh, I have breakfast, I'll go down and watch like a YouTube video while I eat breakfast. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I get into my day that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that, that works well for me. I just, uh, with the way that I work, and this is going to change for you, man, I'm telling you, like, in six months' time, one of the first thing first things you'll need to do in the morning is to just make sure that everybody's okay. No, no, that's never going to happen. You think that? Nope. Mark this point, dear listener. No, that's never going to happen. It's not going to happen. Autumn Space asked, how do you calculate publicity in your magical spreadsheets when thinking about paid gigs like talks and keynotes and events and things like that? Since they're they're asking about spreadsheets, I assume that they're not really asking you. You don't have you don't have spreadsheets to track things, do you, Mike? No. I was even just uh, just just for linking purposes, I, I I was going to link to our episode on the Emith Revisited, which you just recently put up on YouTube, and I was going to send that out in a tweet. And when I loaded it up, I happened to hear that there was a section in there where we were discussing how you had it on your project list to make some spreadsheets so that you could evaluate what your hourly time per project was. Yep. And, and you said, oh, I'm going to get to that soon. I'm going to get to that soon. But that this is now approaching almost half a year ago. And uh, I never define soon. I know you never define soon. But so I just I want to know, like, has there been has there been any motion on this? No. You know what actually what? I think needs to happen is like you just need to help me. So okay. whenever that will happen is when that will get done. Because I don't even know where to begin. Okay, deal. That's right. that's total deal. We, I I will I will help you with that, Mike. Thank you. Uh, we we will meet up at some point, and we can talk about how how to do that in a practical way. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll help I'll help you through that. Thank you. Is this even a thing you worry about anymore? Well, well, the thing is, it's it's not a it's not something I ever really worried about. Like, in my experience, has always been that any notion of publicity is overrated un- unless you are trying to achieve something very specific so it, it, if you are if you are let's say you have made a new app that is going to be a new platform you want all of the publicity in the world because what you're trying to do is attract an enormous number of users and uh, as we mentioned before, there are things like network effects. If you can get even just a little bit ahead, it can matter a huge amount later on. Like, there are narrow sections of the world where publicity genuinely matters. But even though I have I have found myself this reluctant public-ish figure on the internet, I just have never thought that this kind of publicity matters for the kind of career that I want to have. And so my feeling has always been like, well, my very first video, the UK video, I was a nobody when I uploaded it and lots of people watched it because they liked it and it was good and it was shareable. And so I I don't think if I went out and took all of the gigs that people offer me for for publicity, I, I don't think that would affect my YouTube business hardly at all. Like I think people think there's a relationship between those two, but the relationship is very small. Uh, j- just like actually, just like we we discussed before, uh, 
people overvalue followers on social media where they think like, oh, wow, look at all those Twitter followers. When that person tweets out a link, so many people must click it. No, no, they don't. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have nearly as much of an effect as people think it does. And I imagine publicity for me would be the same kind of thing. Like would it have, would it have some effect? Would it have a non-zero effect? Yes. But is it worth my time pursuing publicity, which I don't want for me personally anyway, would the time spent pursuing that or working on any publicity gigs on a spreadsheet pay off in terms of greater numbers of subscribers or larger numbers of views? I really don't think so. And I have some anecdotal data from, let's say, people I know who have done extremely high-profile publicity things and it affects their YouTube channel none. Like, you would never know. It doesn't seem to make any real difference. I don't have anything that factors in publicity. I think it's overvalued. What I do have is is what I've just discussed before, is that I have a, a crystal clear idea of what my time is worth on various projects. And so when anybody comes to me with the idea of like, oh, we would like you to work on this this project or like here's a here's a talk that you could give somewhere or here's the other thing you could do. I'm evaluating it in purely in terms of how much would my time be worth? Like what is the opportunity cost of going to this event? And are they covering more than the opportunity cost of, of working on another YouTube video? And so I don't do a lot of public events because the amounts offered usually don't cover the opportunity cost that it's it's almost always better to spend my time working on a video that people will like than it is to spend my time you know preparing for a talk at a public event anything publicity related for me the the main kind of barometer is do I want to do it this is something i want to do yeah, like yeah. Conference talk, right? It's not actually gonna make a massive difference to my bottom line, uh, but do I want to do this? Like, I've I've turned down same as you have. I've turned down paid speaking gigs because mm-hmm. they just it didn't excite me enough and, and wasn't worth the amount of time it would take. Uh, but I also accept them, and I like to do them when a bunch of things align for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To to be clear, there is a difference for things that are fun or interesting, or have some kind of other opportunity. But that is that is very different from a just straight-up publicity kind of move. Yeah. Like the, the, I, I am with you on that. Like, there are events that I have gone to, there are events that I will go to, that I am doing, not because, like, oh, I am desirous of publicity, but because it is an interesting event to go, and, like, I personally want to go, right? Or there are interesting people there. Or it could just be a fun thing to do. But that's a like that's a very different kind of calculation than than like a publicity calculation. Yeah, and and I think that that's important with these types of things, in all honesty, because if you there are always going to be things that you will want to just attend because it's going to be fun. And mm-hmm. as lo- my feeling is with stuff like that, as long as I'm not losing money, as long as there's a way for me to like make the money back or make it work financially, then I'm mm-hmm. going to go for it. You know. Mm-hmm. And Bahij asked, uh, what is your protein bar of choice? Ooh, asking the hard-hitting questions. Protein bar of choice. <laughs> within, within arm's reach, I can lean back in my chair. I can lean back in my chair. And I can grab several boxes of protein bars. In fact, 
within arm's reach, I have something like 60 protein bars in oh little God. boxes. <laughs> so it's more than you need. You don't need that amount at one time. Okay, no, but it's only because these, these are within, within hand's reach. They happen to be on the, on the counter. In my kitchen, there is one cabinet which is filled entirely with protein bars. I don't know. There's got to be like 100, 150 right. protein bars in there. I don't know exactly. How long do these things last? They last forever. Okay. And but still, you don't need that many at one time. Uh, well, here's the thing. Quest is the brand that I Quest. like. And they make a ton of different flavors. And there happens to be a little bit of an oversupply right now because they've changed a bunch of the recipes. And I am trying out a bunch of the different flavors. And uh, I am also, I'm also getting ready for some summer travels i have a lot of summer traveling ahead of me i have a bunch of family stuff that i'm going to go to summer cortexmas there's summer cortexmas where we will not be recording a show uh because yes cortexmas is the holiday that comes four times a year twice and it's a coming year. up it's coming up <laughs> this summer uh and whenever i go traveling i want to make sure that i have enough protein bars to cover the length of my travel. So I can get by with two protein bars in a day if I have to, if there are no acceptable food options, or if I just don't want to eat like a regular meal. So for example, when a couple years ago now, I did that random acts of intelligence show down in Alabama, uh, a big part of my suitcase was loaded up with protein bars because I wanted to be able to have a meal covered for every meal for the duration of the week or so that I was down there. So I had this suitcase hmm. filled with various protein bars so that I would always know there was food available. Why would you consider to have one for every meal available? Because I like to plan for the worst case scenario. Who knows what the food situation is going to be like? Not me. You never know. I feel like that's over planning. I, th- I feel like that is, is over. You don't, uh, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Turns out, uh, in Alabama, everything is delicious. Absolutely everything is fantastically delicious in (laughs) Alabama. And I wanted to eat six meals a day in Alabama of everything. It's like, mmm, yummy breakfast food. I'm going to have a breakfast. I'm going to have second breakfast. It's going to be 11Zs. And you roll around like, oh, lunchtime. This is fantastic, too. So uh, I I did not need all the protein bars that were there. But because I am often traveling on standby trips... For example, I don't always know precisely when my leaving date is going to be. This is part of the reason why I really like to overpack. And it totally worked out for my last trip to Amsterdam when I overpacked protein bars, but I ended up staying much longer. And really, one of the prime reasons that I left Amsterdam when I did was I was finally out of protein bars for lunch. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I have to go now. Uh, I'm not going to find a substitute lunch. Like, this is just what I'm going to eat. So uh, so I left. But yes, Quest Protein Bars. I, uh, I highly recommend them. And they are perhaps the only protein bar that I have ever eaten that is genuinely a replacement meal. Like, I've, I've come across a lot of these protein bars where like, oh, you can eat one of these and you won't be hungry again. Lies. Total lies. But uh, these these really work. I like them a lot. Have I ever made you try one, Mike? I can't remember. We had a conversation on the phone after an episode of Cortex. I think it was the episode where I was dying. Uh-huh. You remember when I, I ate the bagel no. and went really loopy? 
Not really, no. This okay. doesn't even sound familiar. Well, that happened. Uh, and then we were talking about Quest Protein Bars. We were talking about the fact that different people like different flavors and some people might eat one and think it's great and somebody else will think it's disgusting. And then mm. you said you would bring me some to try and you never did. Oh, okay. Must have just forgotten about it. Uh, but yes, that has definitely been my case with the Quest Bars is if you can get your hands on a variety pack, you should try the variety pack because my universal experience is that people have really strong reactions to the various flavors that they either like them or they think they are like poison. And so if you try one and you think this Quest Protein Bar, it tastes like poison, you need to just try a different one. It's something about the way they're made. People have have these these very, very strong reactions to them. But I guess, uh, did I promise you that thing? It doesn't sound like a thing I would promise. You did. You said the next time we meet, I will bring a selection of them so you can try them. Hmm. And I said, okay, I'll look forward to it. And that day never came. Okay, well, the next time we meet, I will bring a selection of them so you can try them. I have no, literally no faith in you. I, I don't see why you wouldn't. 